Earning Their Stripes is back on your podcast feed, the one and only pod show, as far as I know, focusing specifically on the Miami Marlins farm system, the existing prospects they already have, and that we look forward to seeing in the major sometime soon, but also the ones potentially being added in the very near future through the draft and international free agency. We, we tape a, a look at all that stuff here. It's Eli Sussman speaking right now, your managing editor of Fist Stripes. We're in the midst of underdog week across the SB Nation network, and we're going to have a little wrinkle of this episode that applies to that as well, looking at players that hopefully will overachieve and become significant parts of the team moving forward despite a lack of traditional prospect pedigree. We're going to ease into that conversation by first talking about some premium talent, both coming through the draft and currently in the system as it is. And joining me in this episode just a two-man conversation this time, is Spencer Morris. How are you doing, Spencer? Hello, hello. I'm doing well. And some technical difficulties for our pal Ethan Vodowski and uh, some work conflict with Ian Smith, but we're all going to get together soon, I imagine, leading up to the draft, which is just a few weeks away, and certainly reacting to the draft after it happens. Much different structure than we all envisioned coming into it, thanks to COVID-19 and restricting of um, the type of financial flexibility that these teams usually have this time of year. Only a five-round draft, which puts tremendous pressure on teams to really nail every single individual pick that they get, of, especially at the very top of the draft where they're actually investing some real money in it. The Marlins, we're all looking forward to this draft very much, of course, because the Marlins hold the number three overall pick. You don't know when, if ever, in the foreseeable future, they'll be picking that high again. And it's a, it's a great crop to look forward to, especially at the collegiate level. Um, but, Spencer, the reason why it's great to have you on this time is because earlier this week, a great breakdown of prep outfielder Zach Veen, who is, in depending on your opinion, could be the best overall prep player available in this class, certainly one that has an extremely high ceiling. So, I wanted to just throw it over to you um, in terms of just a, a simple summary of what you saw in Veen and what your recommendation would be to the Marlins about whether he's a serious candidate for them to consider at number three. Yeah, I mean, I started looking at Veen kind of last summer, right after the 2019 draft, when I was sort of doing my first pass on the 2020 class. I tend to start with prep hitters usually um, when I first get into a new class of talent. And um, Veen at that point, you know, he was kind of ranked within the first tier of prep prospects. Um, But definitely some guys were, you know, consistently being ranked ahead of him. I would say that, you know, Pete Crow Armstrong was probably the most common um, number one prep outfielder at that time. Uh, but right away when I started looking at V and I was just really impressed with how advanced he looked as a hitter, um, in the, just from a mechanical standpoint, from an approach standpoint, I think he gets really high marks in both of those areas. And on top of that, the tools are really close to the top of the charts as well. Um, he's not the biggest guy yet, but he will be in time. He's 6'4". There's a lot of room for him to grow into his body more. 
And I think once you see that happen, you're talking about a guy who could have plus hit and power tools. Has a chance to stay in center field. I would probably give him about a 25% chance of doing that. Um, but even if he ends up a right fielder, uh, which I think would be his kind of long-term home if center doesn't work out rather than left field, I think you're, you're looking at a guy who's potentially going to be hitting in the heart of the order, providing some defensive value. He's pretty good on the base paths as well. Um, so you've got some pretty big tools. He gets high, high marks on his makeup, his work ethic from everybody I've read on the subject. And I think, you know, the sky is really the limit for him. You're talking about a guy who has, I think, MVP type upside if it all comes together. Um, obviously, you're talking about really the 100th percentile outcome for anybody when you're saying they could play at that kind of level at that stage in their career. But I, uh, he's probably the guy that I would pick at number three if, you know, I were in charge. And there's plenty of reasons that I'm not. But he, uh, he checks pretty much all the boxes for me. Um, I think, you know, it's more like, it's much more likely that the Marlins will go a different direction. I would be really surprised if they ended up taking him. Um, I don't think it's like a, a blunder to pass on him. Certainly there's some other really good players in this class. I think um, overall a little bit stronger than last year's crop at the top. Um Last year, you had Adley Rutschman at the top, who would have obviously gone number one this year as well. Um, and But I think Austin Martin and Spencer Torkelson might be better talents than uh, anybody in the 2019 class was after Adley. And the Marlins won't get a chance at them, but after that, you also you have um, Asa Lacey, who kind of looks like the odds-on favorite, who was just absolutely bonkers for Texas A&M before the season got shut down early. Um, I think, you know, you're looking at number two starter upside with him. Um, and the reason that I am not, like, quite as enthusiastic about Lacey as compared to some other people uh, would be is just that I – I obviously love the stuff. It's impossible not to love the stuff when you're talking about a left-hander who's consistently in the mid-90s with his fastball. And it's like a very deceptive fastball. He creates a angle kind of with his stuff that's I think makes it even harder on hitters. And then in what he was able to show, he only got four starts this year before this the season was shut down. But in those four starts – he was showing probably the best slider at the amateur level in the country with the exception of maybe uh, Max Myers. It's another pitcher who's probably going to go in the top 10 um, in the upcoming draft. Um, but nonetheless, you know, if you want to argue Meyer a bit ahead, I, I might do that myself, but regardless, you're talking about like a, a 70 grade, 65 to 70 grade slider close to the top of the scale. It's a plus fastball as well. I think the changeup is above average. The, the only real concern I have is that I think the top half of his delivery is a little bit busy. Um, his walk numbers have been a little bit shaky in the past. He walked about four and a half batters per nine as a sophomore. He was doing a little bit better than that uh, in the starts he got this year, but 
for me, that's still a little bit of a concern. I think that the command has to improve from where it is now for him to be that kind of top of the rotation arm. Um, and I think dep depending where it ends up, you could have anywhere from kind of a volatile mid-rotation starter uh, to maybe a back-end reliever if he really doesn't improve much in that area at all. I think that most likely he ends up kind of in that number three starter range. Uh, so I, I still obviously like him quite a bit. But I, like I said, I mean, with Veen, I think you're talking about a guy who could hit third in your lineup for six, seven years. So I, that's really hard for me to pass on uh, regardless of who else is on the board. Yeah, a million factors to consider here. Um, a lot to like about Lacey. I mean, our co-host, Ian Smith, he's taken part in numerous mock drafts. He, he had one that he published on Prospects 365. He had another one that he did for Prospects Live and then just recorded one earlier this week with Locked On Marlins. And I think across the board, he's, he seems to think that Asa Lacey is going to be the fit at number three with the Marlins. Um, I guess the most, aside from all the things you said, and of course what he, what he accomplished in college, um, there is a natural, I guess by, by the, all, the whole general public, there's a natural lean towards him with the Marlins uh, just because the Marlins at this point, they, they've graduated a lot of their exciting pitchers to the majors. They've traded away a couple others. And of course they've gone really heavy on acquiring outfielders the past couple of years. The last couple of first round draft picks they had 2019 was JJ Blade. 2018 was Connor Scott. Uh, the pick after Blade last year in the supplemental rounds, that was Cameron Meisner. They traded for Jesus Sanchez. So they've really stocked up on outfielders. Um, and a lot of ones that have different strengths and weaknesses that there's been some concern that they have a surplus of outfielders. But that being said, I think we, we stand on the same point here that um, that positional scarcity really shouldn't be a huge factor in the decision you make if you're a team. You shouldn't worry necessarily about what other prospects you have relative to certain positions because of there's a pretty significant bust rate and everybody's on a slightly different timeline and you can't really account for injuries or whatnot. I, I think really the only, the only criticism I saw of your article from people were, were those pointing out this kind of the overload of outfielders that they currently have because of the ones they've invested in, in the draft and the ones that they've developed. Um, but in your interest in Zach Veen, you really don't think that, that that kind of competition quote unquote is an issue right that they should just focus on the best talent regardless right yeah i don't think that the top of the draft is ever the time to really be looking at organizational need as a consideration at all um like you said i mean these draft picks are rare opportunities or you want them to be anyway um and you really, for me, I think you have to go with a pure best player available strategy in the MLB draft. Obviously, I think people who maybe, you know, not to try to throw shade at anybody, but people who maybe don't follow the MLB draft like super closely, I think they're accustomed to seeing what teams do in like the NBA NFL draft um, where need that like immediate need often is a, a large consideration um, because uh, obviously the difference being uh, players in the NBA and NFL are able to have an, an immediate impact in the year that they're drafted. But in baseball where you have at a minimum about a two year runway for any of these draft picks before they're making a major league impact. Um, when, if you try to draft for need, you're, you're trying to, you know, 
predict the future essentially. And to me, like I obviously I am high on quite a few outfielders in the Marlins system right now. I think they probably have at least three like long-term quality big league outfielders in the system currently. So um, I would certainly agree that outfield is not an, an organizational need. Um, but when you're talking about the third overall pick in the draft or even the hundred third overall pick in the draft uh, with success rates being what they are with MLB prospects, you really just have to take the player that you have the highest confidence in, I think in those early, in the early stages. Um, obviously this year in the draft really only has an early stage. So I would say that, that kind of holds true through all five rounds this year. Um, you, it, you just have to take the guy that you have the highest degree of confidence is going to be an impact player for you. And for me, uh, at number three, assuming Torkelson and Martin are off the board, uh, that would be Veen. And I think ultimately what makes this year so much different than other years is, of course, the pandemic that we're in the middle of and the, the very real consequences that has on the entire business of baseball. That's frankly what I imagine being the difference in who they select is how the Marlins feel about themselves on a financial standpoint. Of course, last year, and I think each of the last two years, they've spent above their bonus pool. They've spent just enough in order to sign everybody without actually incurring any additional penalties based on the bonuses they handed out. This year, the bonuses are stagnant from last year. And obviously, with all the reduced rounds, the overall bonus pool that they're spending on this draft class would only be somewhere in the like $13 million range and it's several million dollars less than last year. So either way, the draft isn't going to be as expensive as the previous year, but considering where the Marlins are as an organization and how hard hit they're going to be by the reduction of the regular season and the lost revenue, what I just wonder is the difference between Lacey or one of the other, the best available college player on the board and someone like Veen is just going to be their tolerance for spending on an amateur player because um, of course, the last couple of years, they've had that commitment to spending, but under these different circumstances, if this is for whatever reason that they want to spread out that limited bonus pool among each of their first, each of their picks in the five rounds, or if, I mean, as strange as this seems, if, if they feel them, they're in such a dire situation that they don't even spend their full bonus pool on the available picks this year, and they just want to save money that way to make sure it's going towards guys with more immediate major league impact that one of the main attractions, of course, if you're a prep player and you're committed to a school is uh, to play at a four-year college is one, if you're trying to improve your draft stock and as someone like Dean, who's already an early first round pick, regardless, even if the Marlins pass on him, he won't be on the board for long. He's going to go early and you would expect him to sign definitely. But even some of the allure of playing in college baseball might not be the same looking forward as it used to be with concerns about whether fans are actually going to be attending these games, if it's going to be the same type of atmosphere and whether it, it has all the same benefits of college life that colleges used to have before we had concerns about getting too close to one another and all that. So I, I mean, that's, uh, that's a factor that I honestly think is going to be the big difference here. It's just whether the Marlins are feel, uh, feel really financially insecure or whether they, yeah, focus on on getting the most established talent possible. I think that's a way that they can they would back into a, a pick like Zach Veen is if 
they sensed that he would he would sign for significantly less than one of these college players. I, I mean, I I wouldn't rule out a scenario in which teams are not using the entirety of their bonus pools uh, in the draft. I would like to think that that won't happen, but I'm not going to put it past MLB ownership to, uh, you know, try to cut costs anywhere they can. Uh, they've proven that they're very effective in that regard. Uh, but I think that if we get into that kind of scenario. I think a prospect like Zach Veen probably would just go to Florida, uh, which is where he's committed. I think there's definitely a lot of truth to what you're saying where um, college ball is a lot different uh, in our current situation. We don't really know if it's even going to be feasible or not yet. Uh, obviously, they're scheduled to give it a shot, but who, who really knows how that'll even go. Uh, but I think assuming that you know, we are back playing baseball at all levels uh, in 2021 normally. I think a high, high-level prospect like that, um, if he's getting squeezed in bonus negotiations, the team's only going to offer him like $3 million or something as a top five, top ten pick, then I think when you have the opportunity to go to a high-quality program like University of Florida that consistently produces high MLB draft picks, develops players. Um, I think that he would probably take that opportunity. Um, he would have an immediate role on the team from the moment he set foot on campus. And I think he would have a pretty good chance of maintaining his draft stock and then potentially doubling his money. Ah, yeah, yeah, I'll stop you there because that's, that's the one thing I was – overlooking because even though he really doesn't have much room to rise in the draft order if he's assuming that you know three years from now the world is closer to quote unquote normal that the game is in a healthier place financially he goes in the same draft spot but you're right he, he it's millions of dollars difference anyway just because yeah the only circumstance right. him being squeezed right now yeah no that's a good point um i think uh between veen and lacy probably veen uh would be a, a little bit cheaper but i don't I don't see him being like a guy who take a bonus that's like way, way under slot. Uh, I think, you know, he would be under slot at the third pick, but I mean, he's projected to go most likely somewhere between pick six and 10. So he's, he's projected to make quite a bit of money. Um, and I don't think that, you know, he's just going to be enthused to get to pro ball and kind of be willing to take, whatever a team offers them if, if they're playing hardball with them. Uh, Lacey, Lacey, I think, honestly, has, like, there is some risk for him going back to Texas A&M. If the walks tick back up, all of a sudden, he's probably not the number one college pitcher in the class anymore. And that, you know, the bonus for the third the third highest drafted college pitcher is a lot different than for the, the number one. So I think he's going to be motivated to sign, but you're still talking about a guy who, you know, is projected by every single outlet there is to be a top five pick, top five talent in the in the class. I'm, I'm sure his his demands are not are not going to be small either. Uh, I think if you're really going to go for a cost cutting strategy, and you want to find a guy who would be willing to take a, a very significantly under slot deal. I think you have to get a little bit more creative. Um, 
like there are definitely some names I could throw out if we want to get crazy and uh, like assume the Marlins are only going to want to spend, say, you know, three and a half million dollars on pick number three. Then, I mean, there's certainly some some guys who are kind of in the later first round conversation who I think are really interesting and probably three will be the only opportunity the Marlins have to get them before they hit the trade market. But I would think if you were going to try to cut costs, I would hope that like the future talent of your organization would be one of the last things that you cut. And for now, I'm going to operate under the assumption that teams will spend the entirety of their five round bonus pool. Um, cutting the draft to five rounds really at the end of the day doesn't save all that much money. It's uh, less than a million dollars per team on average for round six through 10. So uh, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of, of that move on the whole, just because round six through 10 really aren't an expensive portion of the draft. At that point, you're talking about bonuses that are in the low six figures. Um, so it's, it's definitely going to feel a little weird seeing players who were normally like a midday two prospect just going undrafted this year. It's going to put those those guys in kind of a difficult situation. Yeah, weird. Weird is the word. Not just the draft, but of course everything after the draft, with all the skepticism about us even having a minor league season. And if you're going to, even though rosters would be expanded at the major league level, that obviously won't be the type of platform to show new draft picks. So those guys will. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of uncertainty. It's going to be difficult to evaluate these guys even after they go into pro ball and get associated with these new organizations. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Uh, we're going to use that to transition to one guy that would have been drafted under any circumstances. That was right-hander Nick Neidert originally by the Seattle Mariners and then, of course, traded to the Marlins two and a half years ago in the D. Gordon trade. He was a former second-round pick out of high school, and he got a pretty substantial signing bonus, got off to a decent start to his career, and then it really took off after he got traded to the Marlins, ended up being their 2018 minor league pitcher of the year. And things were looking pretty good for him entering 2019 until he suffered a meniscus injury and that delayed him. He got back on track in the fall league and then he had some encouraging outings in spring training as well. And then of course this pandemic hits and really complicates his situation, but still a guy that if we have a season likely to see him in the majors uh, earlier, as we're speaking, recording this on a Wednesday night or just a few hours after he was interviewed on seven Geff live. That's a show that, Marlins broadcasters Glenn Geffner and Paul Severino co-host and they had him for almost an hour and I really enjoyed listening to him he's an articulate guy very passionate and also has pretty subtle confidence about him and uh, we'll get a little bit more into his his prospect profile in a moment but I wanted to play one clip about his developing curveball because one of the one of the few issues that you have, one of the few concerns you might have about him moving forward is whether he has enough of a breaking ball to get swings and misses at the highest level. And he tried to address one of those concerns 
on talking about the progress that he's made with his curveball the last couple of years. So listen up to that. Um, the curveball is actually pretty new. I started throwing it last year. Um, it would be a pitch I would drop in, I would say, probably three, four, five times a year. Um, and my pitching coach was Dave LaRoche. So he was known for the lalab, where he would just toss it in there. And I'll never forget, he would get on the mound and just toss it up there and hit a spot every single time. <laughs> and I'm like, Roach, you just got to show me this thing. You have to show me how to throw it. And so, sure enough, I started throwing this curveball. I implemented it probably towards the end of 2018, and I was throwing it 65 to 70 miles an hour. And it was very effective. And so the next year I moved in, and I started throwing it more and more. And Jeremy Powell, our pitching coach in AAA, he said, hey, throw that thing harder. He's like, I think you could get some really good bite to it. And sure enough, kept throwing it. And then this year in spring training, Mel Stoudemire, he's, I mean, he, he's, like, he's like, you need to start landing that curveball, and you need to throw it with aggression. And it's just kind of developed into a pitch where I think it could be a really big game changer on – just me being able to use my fastball up and my changeup down, and it just kind of separates things a little bit more. Do you agree with that self-assessment of him, Spencer, that he, he adds a, a trustworthy, consistent curveball to his fastball changeup and his impeccable command that he has that it really it could raise his ceiling as a potential starting rotation fixture? Absolutely. And, I mean, I would say that I personally saw him as a long-term starting pitcher, regardless of whether – the curveball came along or not, uh, I think his fastball change of command are, are good enough that he would have been able to get by really on those alone. So if that curveball is a consistent weapon for him, that's um, a, a legit third offering, is able to generate more swinging strikes, I think he's he could be uh, potentially a guy with a mid-rotation ceiling, which is sort of what he was seen as early early on in his minor league career. Um, obviously, he still doesn't throw especially hard, but I think that when you see him pitching on a good night, he he really does have impact command. Uh, the changeup is excellent, and the fastball may not be hard, but it has life, and he's able to locate it so well that it's an effective pitch for him, even against upper-level minor league pitching. I think it will be against major league pitching, too. Yeah, I was curious when I heard that soundbite from him that I actually went back to spring training just, I looked at a game from about three months ago, which was his first appearance on the spring that was televised, and he pitched a couple innings in that, and was, I was looking out for that curveball, and I only saw, I saw like maybe three of them, and one of them was, <laughs> one of them, he like released it way too early, and it almost went over the catcher's glove, and yeah. back to the backstop, he threw another one that was, with two strikes, I was surprised to actually see him throw it with two strikes and try to get a guy out, but it kind of hung a little bit and the hitter pulled it foul. And then he threw a third one that was like right down the middle. But once again, the hitter swung early and, and pulled it foul. So it wasn't like a big sample of it. And then like scrolling through some quick highlights of him from the fall league as well. I didn't really see him even use it all that much in the fall league. Although he, he was extraordinarily effective in the fall league with whatever he was doing down there. It's uh yeah. So that one particular We'll have to actually look at that pretty closely to see how much he he applies it to his his game. It was interesting the timing that he mentioned that that late in 2018, um, because of course he was the minor league pitcher of the year at Double A. As in, how old was he? Age 21 season, um, and essentially saying that he wasn't really using that curveball to have that kind of success. 
at double A. So it's interesting to, to see him continuing to make adjustments, even though he was doing well on the field. The last time that we updated our prospect ranking a couple of months ago, he was, I think, the number 12 guy in the system. And I was probably even leaning towards putting him a little bit higher because, yeah, a lot of he checks so many of the boxes that you look for in a future starting pitcher. And uh, one, more, one more thing from him that I wanted to play, all the fans really love to hear this type of stuff, is how how close-knit a lot of these prospects are to one, one another on an emotional level. And even the ones that aren't normally all that boastful about themselves, they seem to be extremely confident with the direction of the organization. So once again, this is from the Sevgef Live interview talking about the status of the rebuild and how close he thinks they are to turning the corner. I know the front office gets a lot of heat over the past couple of years, but in a rebuild, you're going to have that because you're, you want to make sure everybody's ready to go when they get to the big leagues. And I would say this year, stepping into spring training, it was like, we got a team. Like we have a team here and we have a really good team in AAA. So it's like, it's like once these two gel together, it's going to be incredible. Like it's going to be so much fun and I know the fans are going to love it. I know the fans are going to be able to rally around us because we have so many different personalities on that team. Uh, it, it seems, for the most part, a lot of the in- industry seems to agree with, with the state of where the farm system is at. And, yeah, I guess the most convenient part is how is the proximity that all these top prospects are to the major leagues and, and how many of the prospects will probably be seeing debut this coming year just because of the expanded rosters. And if they don't have a place to play at AAA, then that just – expedites their trip to the majors and the kind of role that they would have on the active roster. Right. I mean, I think if, if that's the way things work out, if there's a major league season, no minor league season, expanded rosters, I think the Marlins would probably carry somebody like Jesus Sanchez on opening day. Um, you know, you have these, a, a few prospects at the triple projected to start the triple a level, whether it be him or money Harrison, uh, guys of that nature, I think all of those players would probably have a figure to be um, candidates to be with the team all season. And that uh, that could potentially be exciting. Um, it creates a big headache for Don Mattingly trying to you know balance the development needs of guys who could be an important part of the future of the franchise with uh, obviously trying to win games and uh, keep your veteran hitters happy. Uh, you know, obviously the, the starting lineup for uh, the Marlins, I think, is is pretty set in stone. It's a pretty solid, you know, one through eight. I don't know how much playing time outside of kind of the outfield rotation would be available to some of those guys early in the year, but um, you'd certainly probably see a lot of them make their major league debut earlier than we would have expected at the least. Right. And I mean, on the other side of that, as we finish up, I mean, the original inspiration why I was interested in recording a pod episode at this time was because of this underdog week theme that's going across other parts of SB Nation. And so while we were already focusing on guys that are really premium guys that the industry sees as being potentially average or above average regulars at the major league level, there are others that are quote unquote underdogs, ones that at this stage of their pro careers don't necessarily have that obvious path to like big roles in the major leagues. 
But as we've mentioned time and time again on the pod, that the Marlins have excellent depth in their farm system right now. There are guys outside their top 30 list or even at the bottom of the top 30 prospect lists in the system right now who who potentially, even if they're being overlooked or even if you have really specific concerns about their game right now, they there is still a scenario where they turn out to be really effective and consistent major league players with the right adjustments. So that was Spencer. Just just pick out a guy or two you think all that is isn't necessarily on the top of mind for people following the farm system, but that you're especially high on, or that that you see not being all that far away from taking a pretty big leap in the eyes of evaluators. Well, I think the the first guy that kind of comes to mind for me would be Sterling Sharp, who kind of is an underdog for a few different reasons, obviously to be uh, left available in the rule five kind of has to give you a chip on your shoulder. Uh, but also just being, you know, a, a guy who really doesn't have what you, you would think of as big league velocity on the mound, but uh, sort of like Nick Neidert, I think is not, he's not really quite on the same level as Neidert, but despite the fact that he throws upper eighties, most of the time, he is still a really effective pitcher. Um, he has a couple of good off-speed pitches, and he really locates and is able to play those pitches off in one another uh, to create outs, whether it be by strikeout or more frequently on the ground. I think he's a guy who has a chance to be a kind of a number five starter in the majors for a while, and the Marlins got him effectively for free, um, which was a nice find by them. Um, and then another guy who I am pretty excited about for Miami was the player that they got in the trade. I believe it was the trade for Austin Dean, um, Dio Burgos. Yeah, that's right. Um, he is wasn't like a big time international prospect. I think he signed for a five figure bonus. Um, traded very early in his career. Uh, obviously, and I thought that, you know, I didn't, I wasn't really aware of him before that trade occurred, but after Miami acquired him, I kind of dug into him a little bit, and I came away pretty surprised that they were able to pull a prospect of this caliber um, for a player like Dean, Not, no disrespect to Austin Dean, who's, you know, a capable big league outfielder uh, to fill out a roster, but I think you know, Burgos is a guy who has gone from pretty much off the radar to pretty exciting um, in a hurry. I think that uh, he's he's got a chance to be a, a, an impact hitter and stay in the outfield. So uh, that's potential for for you know as a player who's of a higher caliber than somebody like Austin Dean, um, potentially a guy you can slot into the light up every day um right. those were kind of the two who, who jumped out to me the most good well didn't overlap with mine so that's that's pretty good uh i guess the one guy that i saw pitch quite a bit last year and like i mean granted i probably just caught him at the perfect time was this left-hander daniel castano who's, who's about the same actually he's a little bit older than even sterling sharp is He's gonna be he's gonna be 26 by the time we get to the fall this year, uh, but he had um, he, he was a guy that 
just midway through last season was totally forgotten. He was buried in the double A Jacksonville bullpen and uh, similar to sharp. He's velocity challenged in terms of well, his fastball velocity. Whereas uh, I don't know if he ever gets really much above 90 miles per hour, but he's someone that had terrific success last year at double A and the key for him was keeping the ball in the ballpark. He only allowed four home runs and 100 plus total innings that he pitched last season, uh, which is going to be, especially with the particular fit that he has with the Marlins, now that they continue to bring in the fences at Marlins Park for what, the second or third different time, they keep trying to make it more and more neutral. And maybe they'll finally succeed this time in, in increasing the home run rate. So having a guy that's consistently able to suppress those would be a big win. And but really, the more surprising part was how many swings and misses he was able to pile up last year, uh, especially with his changeup. Like he had this one particular game where I think he struck out thirteen in a complete game, and all the swings and misses he got it with this changeup, and how consistent he was at locating it, like below the zone in that perfect spot where it looks like a strike at the knees when he's when it's midway to the plate, and by the time it's caught, it's almost on the ground. How consistent he was with that release point on that pitch. Uh, that's something that really opened my eyes and it wasn't a coincidence that he got like a non-roster invite to spring training. And by the time that spring training was suspended, he was still in major league camp. Like they didn't even hurry to reassign him, even though he seems like a big long shot to even make the team. So he's another guy that, uh, I mean, the ceiling isn't all that sexy. It's probably as with someone like Sharp, a number five starter or a guy that's a swing man. That's the first, the odd man out of that rotation but he was the very last piece included in the Marcelo Zuna trade, the, by far the least regarded of all four prospects that they got in that deal. And it's a little intriguing that they might be able to get something out of him after already getting a lot out of the other pieces in that trade, like Sandy Alcantara and Zach Gallen. And the other one that came to mind to me was outfielder Thomas Jones, who I, I don't know if you'd, he necessarily fits cleanly into like an underdog label because he was a very high draft pick, but that was already four years ago. And so if you're four years removed from the draft and you still haven't played above the low A level, which is where he was each of the last two years, then I think that's sufficient to say that a lot of the shine has been knocked off of him. Uh, Just an extraordinary athlete. And it's not totally reflected in his production, but just in in speaking to the players and coaches that he's been with when he's been in the Marlins system, they all swear that he is the best athlete in the entire system aside from of course there being guys that get a lot more attention for their athleticism who are already close to major league ready but he's someone that has those same kind of tools and when you like adjust for the environment that he was in last year with clinton he was actually pretty productive and he had some pretty extraordinary hot streaks in there if you just look at a few weeks at a time where he showed glimpses of being a really consistent hitter and that's going to be like the biggest issue for him as a multi-sport athlete and someone who is going to have some swing and miss in his game you wonder if there's ever going to be any sort of consistency with the bat, but as someone that can stick in center field and is still in his still relatively young, is he 22? Yeah. He's still just 22 years old. I'm not totally ready to give up on him quite yet. So he's another guy that came to mind. And um, I don't think there's ever going to get a point where he really jumps up on prospect list. It's going to be, it's, it's a long road for him to get from where he is to being someone that, that people can really dream about again and see a lot of potential moving forward. So he's the kind of guy that really won't get a whole lot of, he's going to have to basically get to the major leagues at some point through a string of uh, other underperforming players or injuries. Um, But once he gets there, he's a guy that is either 
not going to be able to hit a lick or he's, he's able to make a couple tweaks to his approach in order to really tap into that, that athleticism that he has. But I mean, there, there's a bunch of other names. If you really want to dig deep down in here, like I have this irrational confidence in first baseman, Sean Reynolds, who, if you look at almost historically strange production from him, the last couple of years in terms of his strikeout rate, where like the precedent for guys swinging and missing so much, at low A and even the short season level and making it to the majors, the precedent isn't even there, but someone who's intangibles and who's uh, just sheer size and raw power really leap out to me. There's, there's a lot of guys. There's a lot of guys that if for whatever reason, they, the organization doesn't, doesn't stick with all their conventional top prospects, or they just have just a tremendously difficult time getting these other more highly regarded names to stick that uh, eventually there's going to be some attrition and eventually some of these guys are going to kind of fill that void. Yeah. I mean, I think over the upcoming season in 2021, uh, assuming there is baseball, I think you're going to really see kind of that future long-term lineup take shape at the major league level. Uh, But I definitely agree with you on Jones. I think he's a guy who, there's still a glimmer of hope for him to develop into a, a quality major leaguer. I think, um, like you said, he was wasn't as polished as a, of a hitter as um, a lot of his peers when he was drafted, but I definitely think he showed some real improvements in that regard in 2019, and there is potential for significant power in his frame if he's able to really gear his swing and his approach for that. Um, right. I don't think he'll ever really be a, a, a great hitter for average, but he has the physical ability to make up for that in other ways. Right. What else was I going to mention here? Um, no, I, I think that was about it. Uh, I guess the other way that ties into this, is uh, again like kind of on an unfortunate note just where the Marlins are as an organization financially and how that affects their approach to free agency especially this coming year and that maybe even in multiple years where if it's going to be an organization that's just hesitant to acquire like established veterans and that if, if you're not going to spend at all in that arena the way that they did this past offseason but if, if they feel like financially that they're it's they're going to be too um, frugal moving forward to really make any significant investments on those kind of free agents in their prime that, that if you're going to build up all your, if you're going to rely almost entirely on internal players for depth, then yeah, that that's really the, the way that these guys break through is I'm not even expecting them to like, go for the top tier type of players available, but just really competent veterans that aren't ready to fall off a cliff just yet. That's, that, that's going to be a difficult balance for them to strike in terms of recruiting those type of guys to come to the team without uh yeah without making really unwise investments. But with that, um we're gonna wrap up this episode. Eli Sussman, Spencer Morris. A quick plug for what we've been doing on Fish Stripes this week, earlier this week, um, in terms of our inaugural Hall of Fame class, our Marlins Hall of Fame class of 2020. This, this big project that has been keeping me distracted from the nothingness that did seven different players, nine different non-players, and we have an additional wing for special moments in Marlins history. 
So you can check that out on the website. It's front and center. And, and make sure to give that a look because it's going to be a new annual tradition for us. So check out Fish Stripe. Some really fun stuff on there. And uh, now that that is mostly in the rearview mirror, we can focus almost entirely on this draft coming up. As we spoke about earlier in this episode, less than three weeks away from the Major League Baseball draft. And there'll be that very interesting undrafted free agency period right after that. And it's going to be very weird, as, as we keep saying, to realize how that draft class will fit in with the organization if they're not necessarily playing live games. But it's, it's going to be it's a big unknown, and we're very excited to tackle that with you. Uh, both the two of us and Ian and Ethan, we're going to be covering prospects extremely closely as, as, uh, something, as something happens on the baseball side. So thank you very much, Spencer. This was a, a very good time, a lot of good insight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been fun. Earning the stripes will be sure to come at you either right before the draft, or we might have something like reacting to the draft right after it happens. But one way or another, you'll hear from us very soon. Go fish. Go fish.